darkness and could not find my way. Then Jesus shined his light on me, and then he turned on my night to day. How he brought me from the other side And when I reach that city The gates swing open wide I'm gonna sing redemption story Of how he brought me from the other side Come on, saved by grace I've been saved by grace My name is in the book of life And my sins are washed away Not what I deserve, but I'm saved by grace. Saved by saved grace. By grace. I've been saved by, saved, by saved by grace. My name is in the book of life, and my sins are washed away.
Amen. Wonderful, wonderful song, isn't it? Honors the Lord. Good song to start in the first Sunday of the new year. Open your Bible, please. The book of Acts, chapter 2, if you will. Acts, chapter 2. Pretty familiar. Probably you can just flip your Bible open there, and it just goes to that passage as much as we've used this here in the last couple of years. The book of Acts, chapter 2. Before we read the passage here, let's kind of set things up for where we are. This is, of course, our first Sunday of the new year. And it seems like it should be further, we should be further along than that. But this last week actually was still the old year. And uh, it's been a difficult week for us here in South Carolina. We've had all this snow and cold. They say it's a record. We've never had this much uh, low temperature this many days in succession, maybe since the records have been kept. And that, along with other things, coming right on the end of the holidays, I felt like it just kind of threw, threw some of our plans for a, a loop here. And I don't want us to get off to a slow start. I want us to make progress every, every single Sunday. We don't have any throwaway Sundays where we just say, you know, not, we don't expect anything important to happen today. And I'm, I guess I think of myself more like the coach in a ball game. And uh, I'm trying to get the team to, to move forward and to make progress every single Sunday. So the first Sunday of the year, if you're a pastor, is a very strategic time. You want to announce plans. You want to cast vision. You want to challenge people. You want to remind them of the importance of the mission, that this cause is very, very important. You want to do that and get people to buy in, if you will, to get them to determine that they're going to participate. And so it, the first Sunday of the year sets the direction for the, for the rest of the year. And if you get a good start, you're well on the way. If you get a poor start, you, you know, you may not do very well or it may take you a while to catch up. So this is a very important Sunday for us. I thought about even changing my message and not trying to do what I normally would do, and I thought, no. Um, as that old gambler from the Mississippi said, you just play with the hand you got dealt. And so uh, this is the hand today that was dealt, and I'm going to play with it and see if God can't bless us and use us. Pardon the unscriptural metaphor there. January also for us is stewardship month. And uh, as I've already told you, we'll be emphasizing that in your Sunday school classes. You should have had a little mini stewardship lesson already this morning on stewardship according to God and to Grandma. We emphasize stewardship one time a year for a few weeks here at the beginning of the year, and we'll talk about our church budget next Sunday night, and I'll ask you to approve it. So this is a, sort of a day for church business as well and some things that you just need to take care of to keep the ministry on track. Now, in the book of Acts today, therefore, I'd like to talk to you along the line for just a few moments, first of all, about our vision and our mission. And then, after I talk about that, I'm going to violate all the laws of homiletics that I ever learned or read about and do something completely different. 
So I'm, I hope that uh, it will be successful. Time will tell, won't it? Would you stand with me? Acts chapter number 2 today. Acts chapter 2. And we'll begin the reading down in verse 41. And as we read it together, let's read it aloud. Everybody reading like a great choir, okay? But here's what I want you to remember as I, as I read the passage today. This is what we want to be. This is our vision of a church. This is the kind of church I want you to be aspiring to have. And it takes all of us. I can't make this church into what I'm going to read about here. It will take you, and it will take me, it will take all of us. You're a vital part of it. You're a member of the body of Christ. I heard some church, and they referred to their members as owners. I don't know how you could call church members owners. We don't own the body of Christ. We are a part of a great, great cause, a worldwide, universal, eternal cause, the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, that cause is carried out in a local church. And today, we are beginning the year, and I want you to think about this is who we are aspiring to be. This is what we want to be as a church. Verse 41, they that gladly received his word, that's salvation, were baptized. Now, you're going to read with me, right? Not silently. All right, everybody together. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Thank you, and you may be seated. So our vision for our church and the mission of our church is taken straight out of the pages of God's Word here in Acts chapter 2. And for two and a half years now, I've been talking about the Acts 2 church. And I've been challenging us to aspire, to dream, to envision ourselves being like that church. That church is our pattern church. That church is our model. That church is the church that is our template. It's the pattern for every single New Testament church, I personally believe. The characteristics of it, I preached on five messages back some time ago, one message on each characteristic. The first characteristic of that church is they had a big, big vision. They were visionaries. They dreamed big. They didn't think about just a little family church with a few people, uh, just uh, somebody getting saved every now and then and not making much impact on the community. They dreamed 
big. They thought in universal and worldwide terms in this church. The Lord had given them the Great Commission. And in the commission, he said, take the gospel to the whole world and to every creature. Now, that ought to be our vision. That's our pattern here. All the world, that's a big, big, big vision, isn't it? 200 countries in the world, 7 billion people in the world. We can't take it to all of them, but our dream, our vision is let's act like we can and let's take it to as many as we can. And then not only do we have that big vision, but we don't forget the individuals. So you see, it's all the world, but at the same time, simultaneously, it's every creature. All the world and every creature. And then I noticed, secondly, that prayer was their priority in that church. Prayer was their priority. These people prayed. This year, we've emphasized on Wednesday night corporate prayer, learning to pray together as a church family because the Bible teaches that there's great power in corporate praying. And, of course, we emphasize the individual, personal, private prayer life of people. But they also gathered together in times of great prayer. In fact, after the Lord Jesus ascended, they spent 10 days, if you can imagine, 10 complete days praying together in a corporate prayer meeting. And so they believed that prayer was the key to their effectiveness, as we do here. Number three, this was a witnessing church. They were very, very bold in their witnessing. They were not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God to salvation. There was a continuous effort toward visitation and reaching out to people and witnessing to people. You see, in our world today, in the church world, we have made evangelism a program. And I think that is absolutely patently unscriptural. The best that we do in evangelism in many places is say, come and visit my church. And though we want people to come and visit our church, we're never going to win very many people to the Lord. We're never going to touch the masses if we expect them to come here. The Scripture doesn't talk about people coming to church nearly as much. It does mention it, but not nearly as much as us going and telling people. The Great Commission is go. It begins with the word go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And the real work of the church doesn't happen in this auditorium. The real work happens when we begin to go out there and to take the gospel of the people that never have a chance to hear it if we are not the ones who will take it to them. And so this was a witnessing church. Witnessing for them was not a program. It was a lifestyle. It was something they did continuously. And then fourthly, it was a spirit-filled church. It was a spirit-filled church. And for about the past six weeks now, I've preached on the spirit-filled life. I hope you've heard it. Uh, it'll be released here soon in a packet, and you'll have all those CDs if you'd like to get it. Or you can look on our website. These services are available almost as soon as the church service is over. If you want to go on YouTube and, and, some, and our Facebook page and, and so on. And, and I've taught and taught and taught on what it means to be a Spirit-filled Christian, to produce the fruit of the Spirit. If we don't do that, 
I tell you, the rest of it is all in vain because the Bible says, without me, referring to the Holy Spirit and to the Lord Jesus Christ, without me, you can do nothing. And so often we think it's our programs. We think it's our personality. We think it's our planning. We think that's what the Lord honors. Ladies and gentlemen, what the Lord honors are godly, righteous, spirit-filled people doing his work like he said for us to do his work. And so it was a spirit-filled church. Are you a spirit-filled Christian today, my friend? And then fifthly, it was a church that focused on making disciples. They didn't stop with a decision for Christ. They weren't content just to get somebody to walk the aisle, as we say today. Yes, they did that, but it was so important that they train and they teach and they mature and they develop. Every single convert had the opportunity to come to full maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly that, that is the reason for the church program here. That's the reason we do what we do. Now, those are the characteristics of that church, and those are the characteristics that with all my heart, I so much want to see in our church. And we have those in degree, but we can always grow so much, do so much more, be so much better for the Lord. A big vision, priority of prayer, continuous effort in witnessing, living and being spirit-filled people and focusing on making disciples, developing our people, that we just not have a church full of spiritual, immature babies, if you will, but people who are growing and developing and becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ, conformed to him. Now, one thing I've learned, though, in my years of pastoring a church is that you can get everybody to buy in and get everybody on the same page today and tomorrow, uh-oh, it slipped. And they can be red hot this Sunday and come in next week and people say, whoa, I forgot about that. In other words, I say it like this, vision leaks. Vision leaks. It leaks like a sieve. The mission leaks. I think in the army they call it mission drift, meaning you start out with a mission and you drift into something else. Mission and vision both leak like that bucket up there that you see on our screen right now. Sometimes people will come to me and they'll ask me a question, and uh, I don't want to make you feel like I don't want to answer your questions, or people will come and complain about something. And in my mind, I think, didn't they hear? Where have they been? My soul, I've only said this a thousand times in the pulpit. I got it on record. Everything I say up here gets recorded. And I can prove to you I said it a thousand times. And then somebody will ask me this question like, whoa, where have you been? I know that not everybody listens when I'm preaching the Bible here. And so I think they just didn't get it. They didn't hear. They were not listening here. How do you keep the passion for the vision and for the mission alive in people's hearts? How do you keep from drifting from that which is most important the best to that just which is good. 
How do you keep the passion for important things from deflating, if you will, in a church and in the lives of people? It's very difficult. There's several things that I can think of immediately that causes vision and mission to drift. First one is success. If you're successful, if people are achieving the mission and doing well in it, then they get very comfortable and they say, oh, we're doing so well. And we want people to have pride in our church and we want to say, oh, we are making some progress. On the other hand, you don't want them to drift into apathy and indifference because we have been successful to some degree. You don't want people to be satisfied with the status quo. Every year I try to make you a little bit inspirationally discontent when we come to the first part of the year, to January. You know what the status quo is, don't you? The status quo is just a fancy word for the mess that we're in. And we don't want to be, ever be satisfied with the status quo. We want to be people who dream big and have a big mission, and we are part of an important cause, the most important cause in the world, the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, for heaven's sake, the cause of Christianity. And success can make the mission leak. And then failure can do the same thing. Failure will cause people to get discouraged and take their eye off the ball and forget what we're really trying to do. I have had, I don't know, many in these years, a hundred different strategies and plans at least, and maybe more, that absolutely failed. You want to look at the guy who's been behind more failures than anybody in Florence County? You're looking at him. Man, we've tried it, haven't we? Through the years, we've tried it. And some of it worked, and a bunch of it didn't. We probably have more failures than we did successes. But do you know what? If you don't try it, you're never going to find out, are you? And so we've, we've not been afraid to try, to find ways and do things that would further the work of the Lord. And we've got to look at failure as not being final. We've got to look at failures. That's just one way not to do it. And then we pick up and we go forward. So what causes our vision to leak? Well, getting satisfied with success, being discouraged by failure, or just getting distracted, getting our eye off of the ball by the demands of life. We get sick, have to take the kids to school. Responsibilities change at work. I I get defeated by something that I can't control in life. And before long, I've completely forgotten what God's purpose and his plan for me in my life is. And so the first Sunday of the year is a day to call people back and say, okay, now, ever since Halloween, you've been on this American trip here. And uh, we went from Halloween to Thanksgiving to Christmas time to New Year's. And uh, now we're into the new year, and we begin it with five or six days of snowstorm and all that kind of thing. So it's time to get back to reality, and get, let's get the work of God going again. Amen? Okay. Then what I'm trying to do is remind us of who we are. We're an Acts 2 church and why we exist. 
to remind you of the greatness of the cause of Jesus Christ that we are a little bit, a little part of as a church. The greatness of the cause. You know, I like the words of old Nehemiah. Nehemiah was building that wall back there in the Old Testament. He was leading it, and all these people were coming up, and they were criticizing him, and they were distracting him, and and discouraging the people around him, and there was gossip going on, and people were cheating each other. And my soul, he's sitting up here leading this, this thing, and everywhere he goes, it's just negative, 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 negative. And two fellows come that are part of the opposition trying to overthrow Nehemiah. And Sanballat and Tobiah were their names. And they come to him, and they start making these allegations and accusations and criticisms and, oh, and they said, come down off of the wall. We want to talk to you. You know what Nehemiah's answer to them was? I'm doing a great work. I don't have time to come down and talk to you. And ladies and gentlemen, every now and then we've got to say to ourselves, we're a part of a great work. And we don't have time to get distracted by all the junk that life is composed of. We've got a cause. We've got a mission. We've got a vision as God's people here at Florence Baptist Temple. Now, so we're trying to, to do all these things. We're trying to create an environment where people come here and they, uh, I, I've always, I've told the staff over and over, atmosphere breeds revival. When we create the right atmosphere in the church, among the people and among ourselves, when we have the right atmosphere created, it's wonderful how God blesses and God uses the atmosphere itself. You've got to try to create the right environment for people. Do you know why thousands of people tried a church and then never went back? Why thousands of people dropped out of church? They're former members of churches because of the atmosphere being wrong. The atmosphere, first of all, has got to be safe. We have spent I don't know how much time and effort in making this a safe place. And I don't want to go into the details of it, but I can tell you that right now we're, we are right on the cutting edge of what it means to have safety in a church. We have some things, it irritates y'all. We're not going to let anybody bring a backpack in this church knowingly, for example. And I, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if you've got your Bible and your sewing and knitting in it. Don't bring it in here. Because in every church violent situation, there's been a backpack. People bring weapons and stuff in. So don't bring it here. I hope that doesn't irritate you. But if it does, get over it. Because we've got to keep this place safe, a safe environment for you, for our children, for the work of the Lord, for the testimony of the Lord. It's got to be safe emotionally where people don't get beat up every time. I know churches where if you go to church, you just get beat up. It's, everything is so negative, and we certainly don't want that. We are realists, but we don't want that. We want to create an environment where people feel safe emotionally and physically. And above all, we want to demonstrate love for one another. The book of John, chapter 13, the Lord Jesus Christ said, by this the world outside will know that you are my disciples. What did he say would be that sign? That you love one another.
And so we want a church where we love one another. I say it lovingly. Not all of you demonstrate that. Not all of you demonstrate that. You don't show to everybody the level of love and affection that you ought to as a brother and a sister in Christ. Ask yourself the question, do I show that I really love other people? No matter what color they are, no matter their social status, no matter what they can do to help me or not help me in my life, do I just care about people because the Lord said to love others as you love yourself? Do I care about people because every human being has the, the image of God stamped upon him or her and because they bear the likeness of my creator, then I love them. Love being an action, not a feeling, a warm feeling, but the way that I treat them, I reach out to them and I show them love. And I must remind you, we're to love one another. We're to create an environment where people feel safe and where we reach out and they feel loved. And in many ways, folks, y'all have done a wonderful job doing those very things. We had three goals last year. The goals were, one, to increase our attendance, and we did that. Now, we didn't blow the doors off, but we did make some gains. And secondly, to increase the number of souls saved, and we did very well at that. We had a big increase. And then to increase the number of people who are serving in the church, because when people serve, that's the way we can show that we love one another. And when we serve, we serve the Lord first. And then we serve other people. And so we completely carry out that command that he gave us. And the last thing that we've really focused on here this year has been sowing the seed. And that's where I said I'm going to totally depart and violate all the laws of good preaching. And let's go to Matthew chapter 13 because I want to show you the parable of the sower again. Because it just fits in with this mission, vision, idea if you want to know what is the Florence Baptist Temple about, what is our mission and our vision, and you want to sum it up here in one little succinct way, here's the passage of Scripture I would point you to. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 3. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. And some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. And other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. Who hath ears to hear? Jesus had the same problem that I have. People can come and sit and not hear. So Jesus challenged them. Who has ears to hear? Let him hear. In other words, he was saying, everybody has an ear on the side of your head. Use it. <laughs> Use it. Tap into it right now was what our Lord was saying. Let me point out some things about this parable. This parable, by the way, is repeated in the book of Mark chapter 4. 
And it's repeated again in the book of Luke, chapter number 8. Three different times, and there's little variations in the, the description of it, but three different times in the Gospels you find this repeated, so it must be very important. Now, note with me who the sower is here. A sower went forth to sow. A sower is a person who goes broadcasting the seed. He's broadcasting the seed. When I say broadcasting, here's how you picture the sower. Here's the, here's the man in the, old, or in the old time, in ancient times. He's a farmer. He has a basket of seed, wheat, corn, whatever it may be, under his arm. And he's walking across his field. And he reaches in and he throws it like this. No combines, no tractors. He's broadcasting it. He's throwing that seed out, dispersing it over that entire field that he's in. And so this is the sower. I want you to notice something about this sower. Listen to me carefully. The focus here in the parable is not on harvesting. The focus is on sowing. And it's so very important. If we, you see, the reason for that is we can't control the harvest, but we can sure control how much we sow. We can't control the results in the Lord's work. I can't control how many people get saved or how people respond to the Word of God, but I sure can control whether I throw out the seed. I can control the quantity and the quality of the seed that we're broadcasting here, and so can you in your life. So very important here. The focus is on the sower, not on the harvester. Now, the sowers here, we have a name for them. We call them Andrew's Army. We have their name on a little card, and if you haven't signed one of those, I sure would like for you to enlist in our army. And the cards are all tacked up here on the wall, right here near the entrance, the south entrance of our building. To date, we have about 624 people. We didn't start until October. In fact, the first week we kicked this off was the 29th, I think, of October, which was 10 weeks ago. It's only been two and a half months. And boy, I am so thrilled by that. I want to encourage you and thank you for your wonderful response to Andrew's Army. 624 people have enlisted thus far. What has been really encouraging to me, I've been having people write me from the television uh, program, and they've been saying, I want to be a part of Andrew's Army. And so we're trying to figure out a way we can send them the information and so on so they can they can intelligently join us and know exactly what we're doing, get a little training through the mail with them and so on. So I've just been thrilled by that. 624, though, here in our church. Let me show you what they've done in throwing out the seed. So far, in 10 weeks, we've presented the gospel to 1,536 people outside the church. Does that impress anybody? 1,500 and some people have been presented the gospel. Of that, 82, the seed fell on good ground. 82 people prayed to receive Christ as their Savior. 210 people have been brought to church or to RU or to one of the attendant programs that we have here. 
and we've distributed 8,684 tracts, booklets, books, pieces of gospel literature that all contained the gospel of Christ. So that was a way of getting the gospel out as well. I'm so thrilled with that. You see, that's sowing. That's sowing. Have you joined Andrew's army, and are you one of those sowers? Boy, the only thing you have to do is want to and say, Lord, I'm going to do that and uh, get you some tracks and, and uh, become conscious of people's needs. The sower. Notice here something else in Matthew chapter 13. A sower went forth to sow, and he sowed seed. Verse number four, when he sowed some seeds. So obviously he's sowing seed. Now, the seed is the word of God here. According to verse number 38, I think it is. In other words, the seed is the gospel. The seed is the plan of salvation and all else that is attendant to it. It's more than giving your testimony and telling your story. It may, be, it may begin with you telling your story and your testimony, but you've got to get to the gospel at some point. Because it is the gospel that is the power of God to change people and transform their lives. And so the seed is the word of God that contains the very power of God to bring about salvation to them. Look down in verse 38. It says, tells me what the field is. This will give you a big vision. The field is the world. Verse 38 our world immediately, of course, here is the city of Florence. And, but I've tried to expand that world out to the PD region of South Carolina. Ten counties where 900 and some thousand people now live. And the reason we've done that is our television program covers all that area plus more. And in addition, you're going out there and meeting people. We have members that live in Marlborough County and Darlington County and Ori County and so on. They drive here all the time and come to church, and they are part of Andrew's Army, and so they're out there dispersing seed in, in Ori and Marlborough and Marion and, and all these other counties around us today. I don't want you to just think in terms, I, I don't want us to be little thinkers. Oh, just our little neighborhood on the south side of Florence, South Carolina. No, 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 no. God forbid. Go into all the world. And the field is the world, the Bible says here. So it, it's going to make us big thinkers if we're scriptural in our orientation here at all. And the world, of course, includes the regions beyond. It's the missionaries that we support that I'm going to tell you about in just a moment. And then I want you to notice with me the soil that's in the field here. And you have four different kinds of soil. Verse 4 is the wayside sower. It says he goes out and he sows by the wayside. The wayside really in the Bible is a road. It's a footpath. They didn't have roads with asphalt on them like we have. They had footpaths where people walked or rode their, their animals, their horses. And they call it the way or the wayside, a road or a footpath. And what characterized the soil on the road was it was packed down and it was hard. And so when the sower threw his seed upon the road, nothing happened because it was so hard. 
Now, what you must understand is this, that these types of soil here represent the hearts of people. The people that live in their 10 counties of the PD, that 900 and some thousand people, some of those people, their hearts are very hard. And when you talk to them, they're not receptive at all. Just as the Bible says here, the, the people whose hearts are hardened and they're non-receptive to the seed, the gospel that we take. In verse 19, it gives a definition or an explanation, and it says that what happens with those people with hard hearts, and if your heart is hard, listen to me today, the seed lays there on that hard footpath, and the devil comes, Satan comes, pictured as a bird, and he takes that seed. You've seen birds feeding somewhere after a farmer had plowed or you'd thrown out grass seed, for example, and the birds come and they're taking it up. And sometimes you're trying to give the gospel to people and they're so hard and they're so unreceptive and you get discouraged. And remember, this teaches us what to expect as we do the Lord's work. What do we expect? We expect to find hard-hearted people who are not going to listen when we give them the gospel. Don't be defeated by that. Know that's coming, that everybody's not going to be receptive. Look in verse 5. You see stony ground. Stony ground is ground where there's a layer of soil, and then underneath it, deep down, there's also a layer of rock. And this was very typical of soil in the Holy Land. If you've been over there, you've seen it's very, very stony, uh, the whole area. Not like South Carolina where you can go down and down and down and there's no stones. But in the Holy Land, it's almost covered by rock, huge rock formations. And the stony ground is a shallow layer of soil with a layer of rock beneath it. Look in verse 20 and 21, the response of the stony ground here. Immediately he receives the seed with joy. With joy, with emotion, with feeling. You say, man, that guy really must have gotten saved. He cried, she cried, they wept. Really, it doesn't always mean what it looks like it means because the stony ground here is a quick acceptance of the gospel, but superficial and emotional. It doesn't last in verse 21. It just doesn't last. This is the person who is dominated by their emotions and their feelings, but they didn't make a strong, permanent commitment. And verse 21 says that when opposition or persecution comes, they quit. They fizzle. Boy, how often we see that. People come to the church and they profess to get saved and they just, boy, they're just, they're overheated for a while. And then suddenly, where are they? People say, where is so-and-so, pastor? I don't know. They just are not interested. Stony ground, superficial, emotional response is not deep-seated in the truth of God's Word. And then there's a third ground there. There's the thorny ground. Verse 7, the ground is full of weeds. It's full of thorns. 
There's competition for the nourishment there. There's competition for the seed to grow. The thorns, it says, choke the word in verse 22. And specific, it says, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Oh, think about that during stewardship month. Do you think money's going to solve all the problems in your life or anyone else's? The deceitfulness of riches. Don't give your life exclusively to what is going to deceive you one day. Over in the book of Mark, he adds another thought to it. Mark said, and the lust of other things, Mark 4, 19. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things, Mark 4, 19. These are people that the world controls. They're in love with what the world offers to them more than they love the Lord Jesus Christ. And they bear no fruit. And for us, that sort of focuses our expectation, doesn't it? Because when I'm sowing the seed, I expect some people to be hard. I expect some people to be worldly and blow it off. I expect some people to begin with a flourish and then fizzle along the road. But thank God there's the good ground. And there were three kinds of ground that didn't produce anything, and there's three kinds of good ground. It produces, according to verse 8, in degrees of 30, 60, and 100-fold. Note in verse 23, this is the person who not only hears the gospel, but they understand it. Ah, that's important to us and Andrew's army. You see, it's important that we talk to people long enough and thoroughly enough they truly understand the gospel, the word of God, the implications of it. Listen to me. The only true evidence of salvation is not whether people hear the gospel or even if they understand the gospel. The true evidence of salvation is, is there any fruit in their lives? Do they bear any fruit? Some bear 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. And thank God this year we've had some fruit. A lot of seed fell on a lot of good ground, and God blessed us with it, and to Him be the glory. Amen? <clears throat> and as a member of this church, I'm blessed today to be a part of a significant work of the Lord, that I can have a part in that. I'm honored, and I hope you feel the same way. None of us are insignificant. Every one of us are a part of the body of Christ. And however you can contribute with time, with money, with heart, with prayer, we're all part of it. And God has given us fruit to his glory. And if you're not a Christian today, what will your response be to the word of God as you've heard it today? Don't be that hard-hearted person that hears the truth of God and then you let the devil come and take it away. Don't be that person who you make a superficial commitment, but you don't really mean it. 
quick, and I didn't really think things through, and then in a week from now, it doesn't mean anything. And sure, don't be entangled by the world to the point that you can't even free yourself and have any time to serve God. No, let your heart be the good ground where the seed of the Word of God comes and a bountiful crop grows in your heart. Stand your feet with me.